We are continuing our Sermon on the Mount series. Now we are on this topic on murder. And then some of you might think that, oh, I, it's, not, it's not relevant to me. By the time when I finish, when we finish this message, every one of us will declare that we are, we are a fellowship that welcomes murderers. All murderers are welcome to the Calvary and the cross of Jesus. And there is a grace and mercy. At the same time, there is a gravity and fear of the Lord in this passage. So before I get into the text itself about murder and anger, let's give a little uh, overview, and it's some sense of review as well. Um, Sermon on the Mount, this juncture, Jesus begins with the Old Testament law and applications. And the six examples starts with the same phrase, you have heard, that he was sad. But I say to you, six illustrations, verse 21 through all the way to 20, uh, 48. Today, it's about murder and anger, and next week, it will be adultery and lust. Um, <clears throat> three things in overview. The first one is a radical implication of the Old Testament law. Jesus gives true meaning and deeper application in each antithesis. When I say antithesis, it's not antithesis of the Old Testament itself. It's a common misunderstanding, and actually the group of Christians actually we would uphold the New Testament as if it is superior or the only authority for the New Testament believers. No, Jesus was not reacting to the Old Testament law itself, but it was the Pharisees and scribes' false interpretations and applications of the law. And it, it, uh, what God intended, intended in written law has the meaning and the uh, scope of the law has been drifted away because of men's traditions. But typical person, because Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and by the time uh, exile and when the people are coming back from Babylon, they didn't speak Hebrew anymore. It's Aramaic. It's a form of Hebrew, Hebrew, but close to Arabic language. But the Aramaic language, everyday language for everyday people, ordinary people, could not read Old Testament. So later, uh, closer to the... Um, the inter-Testament era, the scholars, 70 scholars got together and translated from Greek, from Hebrew to Greek. And it's called the Septuagint, meaning the 70 scholars got together. But at this point, in the typical person would depend on the interpretation and teaching from the scribes and Pharisees. Scribes is a title, office. The people who are teachers of the law. Pharisees is a, a title of a group, not necessarily office at all. So people who are devoted in following the law and they're, they're so passionate about obeying every detail of the law they call themselves Pharisees. 
The problem with that, with, with the good intention they started, but their intention with a little subtle motive for self-righteousness, they re- really wanted to keep every law. It is impossible for them. So they lowered the standard to the externals only. So do not misunderstand as some of these words are not, they made it up. For example, in verse 21, you have heard, and Jesus actually uses that, of the old, instead of it is written, meaning to the scripture, uh, supreme authority of Old Testament, continuing to the, our days also too. But Jesus will say, you have heard, you shall not murder. But if he doesn't go, this is a directly from written word, Ten Commandments, which is God's word. But interpretation-wise, as long as you don't kill anybody, externally, you keep that law. And then if you break the law, it will go back to the judgment, but not in the sight of God, because too too much for them, a human court, because of the Old Testament law specify the requirements and the punishments for the for the murder. So even to, to this day, there are um, debates among the scholars. And two, two most strong de- debates, uh, the reformers usually uphold the radical continuity. Jesus is merely explaining what the Old Testament is really saying. And then the new movement uh, would say, this is absolutely new. That Jesus is upholding the new uh, New Testament commandments, laws. So actually, I believe the right view is combination of both. It, is, it has the radical continuity with the Old Testament law, but there is an absolute newness Radical newness of of that. Why? Because Jesus himself is the author of the law. As a God, fully God, divine authority has given to him. He is equal with God the Father. So Jesus is bringing deeper meaning instead of lowering the standard of externalism. Jesus is actually pointing to What's happening in our hearts? In verse 20, when Jesus uh, challenged the radical righteousness to his followers, including you and me, unless your righteousness exceeds that of righteous, righteousness of Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of God. And this is impossible for those people because, like I mentioned last week, Pharisees even calculated how many Old Testament laws, prohibitions, and the commandments itself, and totaling up 613 commandments. On top of that, their interpretation, what that application will look like. They're obsessed with that. And Jesus is saying, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. And to us, it's actually, I think it's a mind-boggling thing. It is really true. Jesus is pointing out, no man is righteousness, righteous by his own deeds. You cannot keep every commandment. Law actually takes us to the need of Savior. The spiritual poverty 
that bankruptcy in each person's life is revealed through the law. So these are actually examples of what Jesus mentioning about heart righteousness or radical righteousness that surpasses that of Pharisees and teachers of the law. Number two, the ultimate purpose of the law, because of that, is not conformity to the rules, see externally, right, what's on the visible, but conformity to the righteous, righteous character of God. Why is that? Because God's law is a reflection of God's character, unchanging character. So it is absolutely wrong for us to think that law is bad, grace is good. God is angry in the Old Testament, God is loving in New Testament. I like New Testament. I don't want to go to Old Testament. Bad idea. You are not, you are not following Jesus' view and Jesus' uh, instructions for his followers. The Old Testament points all these things out to reveal the character of God. And in uh, verse 48, Jesus concludes this illustration with this quote from the Old Testament. Be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. Which is impossible, isn't it? So that's where the gospel of Jesus is radically different from human religions. All human religions are efforts, human efforts to reach God. The gospel of Christ is that what is impossible to men, Jesus comes down and dies on the cross for us so that his righteousness might be imputed unto us, to those who believe in him. I'll explain a little more on that in the coming uh, latter passages. So how should we keep the law as a New Testament believers? Three things. In the spirit of the law, not just the letter of the law. So what is the spirit of the law? You shall not murder. We should look at spirit. The general principle is loving your neighbor, right? But what, in light of that, what is the spirit of, what is God trying to convey to us? What does God desire to see in me in light of this? That's the spirit. And number two, not just in our behavior, visible behaviors, but in our attitude of heart, thoughts and motives. So just because you don't, you haven't committed a literal physical murder, you're not off the hook from God's judgment. The fear of the Lord is that God knows every secret of our heart. And thirdly, we should keep the law actively pursuing righteousness, that heart righteousness that Jesus is talking about, rather than just passively avoiding external sins. There's one more. Not only radical implication of the law is in the six examples, and ultimate purpose of the law is revealed, but the weightiness of God's judgment is revealed here too. God will judge each person according to God's perfect standard concerning the commandments. So that's why even in today's passage, Pharisees are obsessed with human courts, superior court, which means that in those days they called it Sanhedrin. The elders... They were the not only religious, but the judicial superior court, supreme court of 
Israel. But God is concerned about judgment of God. The day of judgment will come, but every single one of us will come to the court and stand before God and answer. And no one can stand before God without Christ's righteousness. So let's start the first beginning verses, verse 21 to 22. It deals with murder and anger. And the 23 to 26 deals with anger and reconciliation. More and further application. Allow me to read verse 21 to 22 again. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, you will, will be liable to the hell of fire. This is how Pharisees and the scribes reduce the meaning and scope of the Old Testament, song, Old Testament law. <clears throat> when they said that whoever murders will be liable to judgment, they had human court in mind. The horizontal level of judgment. So they restricted its application to the actual deed so that they could keep it. And the consequence of the consequence to judgment of the human core of the law only. So when you think about uh, obsession of a Pharisee's drive to keep every single law was actually by lowering down the standard. And the externalism is dangerous because once we think we could accomplish some of those standards, the next thing that happens is that we look down every single person who seems to be not keeping what I'm keeping. That's the danger of, danger of self-righteousness. Externalism. In all ways that we do. So, externalism of a spirituality graphs goes, you, get, you become more confident, more self-righteous, more judgmental. The people who are following the way of the cross, the way of Jesus and beatitude, the more the person matures in Christ, the more he or she sees the depravity of sin. And actually sees in the full of us the awareness of need for his or her mercy. Salvation from God. And Apostle Paul is a prime example. Among all the sinners, I am the chief. I am the worst kind. He's not making it. You know, pretending. He really literally saw how, depra how depraved his heart is and confessing all that. And one of the... Um, Christian psychologist, um, when, when some of our uh, men were le uh, leaders were listening to his talk, and he mentions he wrote a book, um, Leading with a Limp. And he says uh, he was starting this new uh, university, and he, by be default, because he's older, he became. Initial, the first president. 
And then he insists that can I be chief sinner of the universe, university? So that was a chief sinner. <laughs> and he wasn't trying to be funny. He was actually, the whole talk was about that. Powerful. So we ought to see how dangerous this could be. So now take a look at how Jesus brought its true meaning and deeper application by saying, I say to you. And he says, anyone who is angry with his, with his brother will be liable to judgment. It's much more than anger will lead to murder. No, Jesus is saying anger is equivalent with murder. What's happening in your heart is anger is inner murder of actual killing of another person. Whoa! This is strong language, isn't it? No wonder you know, some people think that absolutely new things are coming up. It's a deeper application. God has his character reflected in his law. And he's at his law, at the spirit of the law level, God has right relationships in mind. God has loving our neighbor in mind. God has our inner holiness in mind, just like he is. But we need to specify some uh, some things that are spoken, uh, unspoken, but more of uh, implied here. Jesus is not talking about all anger is murder. There are actually righteous anger. God's anger when he sees sin is angry. Um, righteous anger. And Jesus when he, when he comes to the temple in the New Testament, John uh, chapter 2, verse 13 through 16, he, um, <clears throat> he, takes the, uh, he makes a strive and chase, out, chase away the money changers in the temple. And thinking that, with righteous anger, he was driving and cleaning out the temple to keep the temple holy, not den of robbers. And we know that. But you know, we could have righteous anger. We are to have a righteous anger as well. When we see something unjust, Unholy, we should feel the righteous anger. Let me give you an example. When you read a story about child abuse, how systematic the abusive behaviors within the TV, within the family, within the school, within the uh, religious system like the Catholicism. We, we ought to have, feel anger. If we feel happy about that, our heart is not in line with God's. Right? So, Jesus is not referring to all anger, but obviously here, unrighteous anger, the anger that comes from our self-centeredness and, and self-protection, revenge, malice, and those things. So because of that, Jesus' scope of prohibition includes attitudes and insults. First, angry attitudes and feelings toward another human being who is made in God's image. In the Old Testament, if you read through the Old Testament carefully, the reason why murder is such a serious sin is every human being is precious in God's eyes because every human being, rich or poor, uh, important in, in the position or low in positions, 
Every human being is made of God's image. So because of that, not only actual killing of another person, murdering another person, anything that devalues not only attitude, animosity, whispers in our, in our thoughts, I wish he goes away for good. It's a soft language then, I wish I could kill him. Oh, I wish I could have perfect crime. No one knows that I could get rid of him. Some people actually try, don't, don't they? And not only that, the insulting words that emerges out of the anger and pride. And there are two words in here. The first one is, if you look at ESV, English Standard Version, insult. And then there is a, a little footnote. And then some manuscripts will say, raka. Raka is very difficult word to uh, translate. So scholars will say something like an empty head or black head or <laughs> worthless person, good for no, nothing person. So anything devalues, once again, person who is made of God's image. And then another one is a fool, the Greek word moras, from which we got the word moron. And the commentators will say something like a two are very similar, but in a way that the worthless empty head refers to that person's uh, head. And the fool, moron, is godless, foolish person who is immoral. So about heart. So whatever we call either you're stupid or you're scum. And in, including the people who are on TV for because of crime and because we think that that's disgusting, that how can you abuse children physically and sexually? And we would use the word like you are worthless scum you should be not living. That thought, Jesus is saying, equals murder. So you get what I am saying in the beginning of our message. If I asked you a question, how many of you are murderers? How many of you committed murder? No one will raise hand. As long as I'm concerned. But we know we're in deep trouble. How many times have I heard those demeaning nicknames when I was growing up? I, I feel scarred. But how many have, have, have I used those devaluing words and insults to people? And even on freeway. Even with our gestures. I'm not going to give you the gestures. <laughs> what has God in mind? And Jesus brings up the real court under the judgment of God. It's not just a Sanhedrin. It's not just a Santa Ana, Tustin, Irvine, Fullerton, Whittier, Brea police station. So next, verse 23 to 26, he goes on further about remedy. But watch this. Instead of him staying on the murder, he actually goes on a further application. It's now anger and reconciliation, verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there 
before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penalty. Do you see the double meaning here? The deeper application is Jesus is pointing to God's court and the, the final day of judgment, but and yet equivalent of God's authority given to the government that we will be in trouble as well. And the two, two examples is worship and the court. Well, you know what Jesus is saying? What's most important right now is that you don't substitute religious behavior, good, noble worship time for right relationships. If you know someone, someone's angry at you, stop. In, in Jewish court, it was actually literal altar. Coming through the, uh, the court of the Gentile, court of the woman, and court of the Jewish men, and then they cannot go further anymore because it's a court of priests. And you, you hand them over your sacrifice, an altar. And Jesus is saying, you remember someone is angry at you because of what you did. Stop. Stop the worship service and go. And be reconciled and come back. This is not figurative things, it's conceptual things, more of a figure of language, not at all. When we come to worship, we ought to think about, do I have any unreconciled relationship? Is somebody angry at me? And Jesus says, Jesus is saying, go. Not because worship is less important, but because right worship is more important than wrong worship. I do not desire your sacrifice. Bulls and lambs, take them away from me, the Old Testament gods would say in the Old Testament. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Obey what I command you. So in a way, as a pastor, I always encourage you to come to church on Sunday morning and worship and making a commitment to do that. But this is the only exception. You're allowed. We are actually, you are encouraged and urged. Stop worshiping and go reconcile first. Isn't it also radical that you are not angry? The other person is angry. Another example, that the other side of it, Matthew 18 when you are offended, that you go alone to that person. But here, what Jesus is saying, you know everybody, uh, someone is angry, you should not continue your religious service. Radical. But it is real, isn't it? So three things. Do you see this? It calls for right prioritization of reconciliation because we are to leave our gifts there and first go. It also calls for urgency of reconciliation. Settle matters quickly. We can't say, oh, I, I need to go ask for forgiveness. And so and so, I, I did wrong. Or you can't, you can't say, uh, that person, either your family member or your boss, former boss, hurt me so deeply, I cannot and will not forgive him. It will take time. In the meantime, you cannot worship. 
God's wor- God is not delighted in our worship. Take your sacrifice away from me. Including our tithing and giving, including our Bible studies, including our worship service attending, including our heartful singing. There is an urgency. The God desires us to reflect His character in loving others and restoring right relationships. Of course, like anger, there is a caveat and condition here, a qualification here. As long as it depends on you, live peacefully with everyone. Some people will not forgive you, but we need to still do our part, asking for forgiveness sincerely, uh, not nothing like a half-hearted thing, the the modern way of forgiveness, uh, asking for apology, asking for forgiveness and apology. Sorry if you're hurt. Too bad the unspoken thing is too bad you're too sensitive. It's not my fault, your fault. But if you're hurt, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's hard. It's reality is hard. And as I get older, I just want to have right relationship with everyone. I cannot lead this worship and this church with broken relationships in my heart. So as I'm doing my part, my perfectionism come in. Right? I want you to forgive me. I want you to, well, you say you forgive me. I don't think you forgive me. Because you defriended me in Facebook. <laughs> Those are the times I was driven and I, I was, yeah, I was self-centered. Please forgive me. I repent. There are still people who are stand-up fish. It's not my responsibility to make them forgive me. And same thing to you, brothers and sisters. As long as it depends on you, take your heart to the cross of Christ and ask for mercy. Unless you have forgiven me, I would not be saved. When I look at the depravity of my heart, I have no hope. But when I look at the, your cross and your shed blood, Lord, that is the only hope I have. So if you forget everything I say so far, as soon as possible, go to the person that has broken relationship. As long as it depends on you, restore Reconcile that relationship. So not only it calls for right prioritization, urgency, but right relationships in our lives. Sinclair Ferguson, the pastor and theologian, reformed theologian, has this insight for us. Animosity, he says, is a time bomb. We do not know when it, when it will go off. We must deal with it quickly before the consequences of our bitterness get completely out of control. Most human relationships that are destroyed could have been preserved if there had been communication and action at the right time. So... Brothers and sisters, even within our church, let's deny, let's not deny the need for reconciliation. When you live this close, conflict is inevitable. And I'll tell you, I've been in mediating conflict resolution several times in our church. Also, I asked someone to mediate my conflicts with one of our leaders. And because of that, our church has, at least in my knowledge, full sense of unity. We're on the same page in our heart toward our common father, one father, one spirit. Do not delay. Do not deny your bitterness. 
Do not deny or minimize your wrongdoing or your mishap, mis- mistakes. Within our, ch- our church community, within your family, within your coworkers. Three applications I would like to suggest. How do, I, how do we deal with this anger? Number one, we are to never give the devil an entry point to our lives in, uh, in our anger. Ephesians verse, chapter 4, verse 26 to the rest of the chapter has the insight. But I want to distinguish two different points here. The first one is, starting with verse 27, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let, let no one, no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Maybe this is the moment that we need to stop. No matter how many of your savvy Christian friends are okay with using cuss words about being real, we need to stay out of it. Especially about pointing to someone, about any kind of demeaning things. The fear of the Lord should be on our head. Not because we want to be good at tissue, I mean, could he choose kind of person, but because we want to live in the sight of the Lord, that God sees our heart. Verse 29 again, let no one, no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up, as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. This is the spirit of the law. So when, when you look at the Greek word, the opportunity, the idea is a foothold. Have you ever experienced that? The door do door salesman. Uh, they all do this, and not only they have a first sentence is that ask me questions that I have to answer, is compelled to answer, and if I ignore, sorry, I don't even hear what they're saying. Sorry, we're not interested. That's a foot in the door technique. So before I close the door, they put one, do- one foot in there. So I cannot close the door until, until they pull out, right? Devil does that. So a little bit of anger, we give into it, and we kind of enjoy the power of anger, and we're giving devil foothold, entry point. Maybe we should think about you know, one of those, like a nice garden, and then you have a flower, beautiful flowers and nice grass. But the things that shouldn't be there, it's like it's really hard to get rid of them. But if you pull that out, the root goes deeper. Foot in the, te- foot in the door in the technique, the more we allow the time, the devil, the opportunity to come into our lives, it grows. How many of us have a full regret, overwhelming regret, because I didn't mean to say it, I didn't mean to do that? I have four sons, two of them are teenagers. So, you know, there are moments that I experience out of the body. You know what I'm talking about? You watch yourself. And I'm, telling, I'm telling myself, what is wrong with you? You're out of the control. You're screaming, but you cannot stop. Come on, stop. You're going to hurt the boy. But here, here I am, going further and further. By the time, why am I, why am I so angry? Well, of course. By the grace of God, many of us didn't go further. 
But if you let the devil take over, we will do such things that we will regret for the rest of our lives. Not to mention core of the law. I know as a pastor, I have visited people in their families, their living room, nice houses, houses, houses and doctors asking tough questions because of abusive signs of their anger. Of course, they're in full denial, but because of the law requires any, even pastors and counselors, when a teenager or the kid is confiding in you about how abusive their home is, I have to report. And as a pastor, I have to come and try to lead the parents. It's the most painful experience. And I, I, I see that, glimpses of it. They didn't have a full intention a lot of times. They just went further and further and further and further and further. What about with our friends? How many relationships are damaged because of our anger? Have you been to sports games of our kids? Who goes crazy? These dads and moms screaming at top of their lungs. Sometimes in our little league for our boy, the managers, two managers went full out and fist fighting because of anger. Let's never give the devil opportunity. We need to be vigilant about spiritual battle going on. Number two, we are to deal with angry feelings in a healthy way. Anger itself is not bad. Especially when you begin to feel this overcoming anger. By the way, do you see this? Verse 26 is a command. Can you believe it? God wants to be angry. But in your anger, do not sin. In other words, do not stuff it in. Like a Sinclair Ferguson said, if you deny your angry feelings, you act like everything's okay. And you really believe everything's okay in your relationship with another person until it spews out in somewhere. Time bomb goes off. And on the other side, I have human secular psychologists empowered the people who are broken coming out of that. Oh, because of it, just stuffed the anger. Let him or her express his anger and her anger. That's nonsense. Don't dump your anger on others. Our men's group and women's group are designed for real relationship. But that's not the point, that's not the place that you dump your anger about your husband or your wife or whatever the problem you have. Of course, you can share transparently. Lovingly confront the person involved timely, which is very important, and then forgive the person and let your anger go. You can't do it. I cannot do it. So we need Christ and the gospel of Christ. And third and last, we are to pursue right relationships with others as our way of life. First John 4.20, another side of spirit of the law. Apostle John says, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, whom he ha who has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. In other words, it is impossible for us to say, I love God, when our relationships are broken. The horizontal and the vertical of the cross symbolically suggests to us that our Christian life is a two ways, loving others and loving God. 
Let me close with this thought. Sometimes when you begin to realize how serious your problems, for example, your wisdom tooth you've been ignoring, it's been really slowly getting painful to a point that you cannot ignore it anymore. Would you say taking care of that wisdom tooth problem early and preventive way is a wise way? Of course. In the same way in our spiritual life, if there is a broken relationship, we are becoming liable murder in the judgment for the murder let's obey childlike way confess our sins and go to Christ and ask for forgiveness and restore that relationship and last one do not beat yourself because you have anger problems Christ died for you and died for me. What we need more is the grace of God to a point that we come back to the, at the foot of cross every day, maybe several times a day, and let the Christ's blood wash away all uncleanliness in your heart. And as you're doing that, Holy Spirit will help you to experience supernatural power I mean it. I have experienced myself. The, the things that you can, could not have done in your own self-effort, Holy Spirit will enable you to restore the relationship, to love the person that you could not love, to embrace and forbear the people that, who are close in your relationship, but it's like a wisdom test, so hard to love. Holy Spirit will give you the supernatural ability to love that person. That is the grace of God. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your character, unchanging character. And thank you for revealing our hearts so vividly and somewhat painfully as well that we want to live on the on the external side, on the visible. But you pursue us. The cleanliness is the inside of the cup in our heart. You desired us to be children of God who are like the Father's character. It is impossible for us. So Lord, let your grace flow in and help us to be utterly dependent on the Holy Spirit and what Christ has done and shed blood for us and give us just joy, pure joy that comes from our obedience and experiencing that hope and the beauty and peace of loving relationship, restored relationship. I pray our church is marked with that vigilance. We desire, dare to desire, to be known for our love for one another, as well as our love for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.